0: This past year, if I were to be very honest with you, has been one of the roughest years of my life. Not physically, not in my marriage, not nothing like that. I've just been in warfare nearly this whole year, past year of 2013. And it intensified near the end of the year. I'm talking about intense. And the strangest thing happened. I got on the plane Friday night in Africa. I've already told Jerry, my wife, and Andrew, uh, uh, who lives with us, but I got on the plane on Friday night. And I went to sleep in my seat and then landed in Amsterdam about 6 o'clock and woke up and got my carry-on baggage, and I went to the, the KLM lounge to wait for my next flight, which was roughly four hours away. And I sat down, and I kept thinking, something's different. I feel different. And I took a little inventory and I realized that I had felt what I was feeling that was different was the pressure was gone. There had been a breakthrough. And what's amazing about that is two hours later, which would have been 8 o'clock in the morning in Germany, Herr Volje, Herr Volje and Issa, our spiritual son and daughter who passed her there, sent me a text. And he said, Dad, good morning, Dad, or something to that effect. He He knows my schedule. I'd be in Amsterdam, and he said, uh, Happy New Year, and he said, I had a dream that I have to share with you, and in the text, he said, I dreamed last night that I saw you in intense warfare and in worship, and there was a breakthrough, and God came, and angels were released, and he said, I saw that, and I woke up this morning, and I had to tell you this. Now, this is after I already feel that there's been a breakthrough. I landed yesterday from Amsterdam, and when I landed, I had an email in my inbox saying, from another one, saying, I had a dream about you last night. I had a number of emails, but someone else, I had a dream about you last night. There was a breakthrough. And then I called one of the men in the church, one of the families in our church that's going through an ordeal right now. And we're praying for them and served our church so well. And um, as we were talking, he said, Pastor, he said, I went to bed so stressed on Friday night. And um, I shared with him what happened, my experience. I said, well, let me tell you what happened with me. And when I got through, he just stopped and he said, Pastor, that's amazing. Because he said, I woke up this morning and something had changed. There was a shift in the heavens. Something is going on, I can tell you that. Something is going on. I was so profoundly impacted by all of this building up toward the end of the year that I even purposed, though it had been announced that I would start teaching vision casting today and establish our theme through this year, I felt the Lord said, wait, before you do that, turn my people's face toward me. Let's begin this year seeking the face of God. And so I'm dedicating the month of January. We're seeking God. We're fasting. We're praying. I'm calling Christian Tabernacle the fasting and praying in the month of, the, of January. Next week I'll teach on vision casting, but turning our faces toward God is a part of that as well. I'm going to read some rather unusual text that seem to be ill-placed, as it were, in a Sunday morning that is the first Sunday of a new year. But nonetheless, this is what I feel to address. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, at least the A clause of verse 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And I would say that on the first Sunday of the new year, one of the better things you could do would be to make a commitment to be in church every Sunday that you can throughout this year and you're, you're not ill or working. But 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 says now about the collection for the Lord's people. There was a famine and Paul was taking up collections to give to poor saints that had been hard hit. And this is what he said. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should... Set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to take up an offering, not. I will tell you that what Paul was saying was, because of the famine that's affected some of the members of the body of Christ, those of you that are blessed, just set aside a little offering on the first day of the week, and when I come, I'll collect it and distribute that among the poor saints and the churches that I'm going to. Now you might read right over that and never notice something very significant that has occurred. The portion in Exodus said you meet on the seventh day. This verse says you meet on the first day. Did you see that? The seventh day was Saturday. The first day is Sunday. I need to explain that before I begin because Christianity is all about new beginnings. So my subject today is new commitments for a new beginning in the new year. To establish an understanding about this, I would point out to you that Christianity of all faiths is unique in this regard. It doesn't save up karma to be addressed in future reincarnations. Christianity alone gives you the way to be able to totally put the past behind you and having you beginning. Even the Jewish faith was about postponing judgment for another year until the next Yom Kippur. The Christian faith is about doing away with an unproductive, unsuccessful past. And if you don't like the way you were born, regardless of the family you came into and the problems you've suffered and the disadvantages and shortcomings and liabilities and all of that, You don't like the way you were born the first time? You can choose to be born again. Amen. Amen. Christianity gives you the hope of a new beginning. Amen. And what Paul is doing here is pointing out something that the early church just kind of understood without it having to be elaborated upon to some great extent. In the Old Testament era, God did not live in man. Man had to go meet God one day out of the week. And God said, six days, just like I created the world and worked in six days and then rested. You create your life in six days, but on the seventh day, you come and meet me and we rest together. You rest in my presence. You come visit me and see me and keep me in your life and I will be the anchor that you will always return to and make sure that your life succeeds and that the other six days are worthwhile. The New Testament era is a little different because Jesus did not Uh, find himself resurrected as it were on a Saturday he was resurrected on Sunday the first day of the week and Christians said you know the God that in the Old Testament was was for us after they had received the infilling of the Holy Spirit they said he now lives within us you see the difference he was with us six days we had our own thing to do seventh day we went and visited God New Testament we have him inside of us Monday Tuesday Thursday Wednesday Friday Saturday and Sunday So we don't go visit him because he's already there. Therefore, every day is holy unto the Lord. And literally every day became a Sabbath to God in the sense of them worshiping God. They deliberately changed the day of corporate worship from the Sabbath day to Sunday, the first day of the week, to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore establishing that it would never be forgotten into perpetuity. They wanted believers to always remember that the first day of the week, Jesus changed everything and came out of that tomb. And therefore, though we have been commanded to worship on the Sabbath, we worship on the Sabbath. We also worship on Friday. We worship on Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday. We worship every day because he lives inside. Every day is holy. So it doesn't really matter if we shift the day of corporate meeting to Sunday to acknowledge the day he was... He was resurrected from the tomb because we're going to still keep every day holy and not just one out of seven. That was very, very significant because it points out again and underscores this important fact that Christianity is about new beginnings. What has been established in the Old Testament now has become something new in the New Testament era. In fact, that wasn't the only thing that was changed. They even changed the calendar from B.C. to A.D when Jesus came into this world. Everything that gets around him gets changed and gets a new beginning. Christianity is not the religion of the second chance. It's the religion of the faith of the second, third, fourth, 15th, 37th, 95th, 100, millionth chance and <laughs> new beginning. That's the thing about God that you need to understand. And at New Year, we remember this strange that we forget it a lot during the course of the year, but at the New Year we remember that, that this is the case, and it's significant that this is the first Sunday of the New Year, so I'm going to talk about this in just a little bit. Most people, in fact, stay up late on New Year's Eve. Very few people go to bed before midnight. No need to try. Too many fireworks going off anyway. Wake you up, right? Somebody said the optimist stays up on New Year's Eve to see the New Year come in pessimist stays up on New Year's Eve to make sure the old year goes out. Amen. Amen. And some folks celebrate New Year's different than believers do. Joke. Okay, this is just joke. This is not a recommendation that you should follow. But a policeman, four o'clock in the morning, is patrolling a neighborhood, and he sees a guy staggering on the sidewalk, obviously highly inebriated, And as he staggers and weaves his way, the policeman puts on his spotlight, bleeps his siren once real fast, and the guy stops and is standing there tottering and weaving on his feet. The policeman says, sir, where are you going at four o'clock in the morning? And the man slurred and said, I'm on my way to a lecture. And the policeman said, who in the world would give a lecture at four o'clock in the morning? And the man said, my wife, amen. You know anybody that resembles that remark? <laughs> Amen. In a burst of optimism, many of us make great promises to ourselves about what we're going to do in the year that stretches out before us. We promise ourselves that we, we aren't going to just work out an hour a week, or, or hour a day, rather. Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to work out two hours every day at the gym this whole year. Yes, we are. And we're not going to run one mile. We're going to run five every morning. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to make up for lost time. We're not just going to diet. We're going to eat nothing but salads throughout the entire year. That's all we're going to eat. Though I would recommend before you make that commitment to look at an elephant, that's all it eats, and it's the biggest animal on the planet. Amen. Not sure that will work real well for you. Our enthusiasm usually lasts about to the third week of January, at which point it begins to falter. And let me be honest with you and tell you how many of us, our, commi- our, our commitments are usually abandoned by the last week of February. This whole gym thing, for example. You gonna work out two hours a day. There's a lot of folks that said that. You go to the gym right now, you've got to stand in a queue to be able to use a machine. You're going to have to wait your turn. That's right. Don't worry. February into February, you can go in there, shoot a shotgun, not hit anybody. And I'm serious. It's just wide open. Commitments get dropped to the wayside by the end of February. And you you laugh, but you know it's because you're relating to what I'm saying. How many of you kept going to the gym past February? Okay, a few of you did. Amen. How many of you kept on your diet past February? Oh, I'm meddling now. I'll just go on and preach here. We also make resolutions about spiritual matters. We promise ourselves we're going to pray more. We're not going to just pray. In fact, we're going to pray an hour a day. We're going to read the Bible more. We're not going to just read the Bible more. We're going to read the whole Bible through this year. That's what we do. Amen. Long about February, what happens? Amen. And you know what? We purpose we're going to spend more time with the family, be a better husband, wife, son, daughter, father, mother, we make resolutions about studying more and enriching our minds, and we do the same thing about resolutions to build our character and work on, on character flaws like anger and impatience. We all do that, but the, you know, after a while, you live long enough, you've broken so many New Year's resolutions, you start looking for some you can keep. And this year, I've made some New Year's resolutions that I can keep. This year, I've determined this year is going to be different. I've made several I know I can keep without any problem. Are you ready? Here they are. I have decided to eat more and exercise less in 2014. I know I can do that. Not only that, I've decided to spend an extra half hour with my feet propped up every day. I know I can do that. And not only that, all this studying I've been doing, this year I'm going to watch an extra hour of TV and lay the books aside. Amen. I'm just joking, because this is where most of us live. But the truth of the matter is, if we make commitments like the ones I've just described, they do not have much of an impact on our lives. Oh, they may impact your waistline, you know. You may gain several inches, and if you watch more TV and lay the books aside, you will probably notice an appreciable decline in the number of the IQ that you once possessed, amen? But the simple truth of the matter is, I wanna talk to you for the next few minutes about some commitments that will change your life, that will profoundly impact your life. If you can make them with me today, six commitments that will change your life forever. Number one, in 2014, commit yourself to forget your failures. Forget your failures. 2,000 years ago, one of the first Christian leaders, the Apostle Paul gave this advice. Philippians 3, forgetting what is behind and straining to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for which God has called me. Say it, heavenwards. Say it. Say it, heavenwards. Come on, help me out here. Are you listening? I press on toward the goal to keep the prize for which God has called me. Which direction? Heavenward in Christ Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going up this year. Would you do that? Which direction? I'm going up. I'm getting elevated this year. I'm not going down. My life is not in a spiral. I'm not about to crash and burn. I'm moving up this year. My marriage is going to be better. My finances is going to be better. I'm being elevated this year. I'm moving heavenward. Amen. How do you do that? Paul tells us in the first part of these verses, forget what is behind you and strain for what is ahead. I want to tell you what keeps most people from moving into their destiny. It's an inability to let go of their past. They're holding on to their past so tightly they can't embrace their future. And that keeps most people from measuring up to the fullness of their potential. God does not want you imprisoned by your past. Every one of us in this building, I will make a confession on our behalf because I'm human. There is not a person in this room that in 2013 has not failed in some way. You know why? Because we are all made of the same fragile dust of the earth and all of us have the capacity to err. To err is human. it To forgive is divine. Amen. Our fallen nature in a fallen world predispositions us to make mistakes. That's why they put a little thing called an eraser on the top of a pencil is because people who make them know that the human existence is one that is prone to error. You can erase a mistake. And some people say, but you don't understand. My mistakes, mistakes can't be erased. That's where you might be wrong. I'm here today to tell you that one of the benefits of a new year as a Christian is you can let go of all of the mistakes you've made and start all over again right now. It's a new beginning for somebody. Some people get bogged down by their mistakes, and they know what they have done and how they have failed, and it keeps them from trying again. I think of Ahithophel in the Old Testament. There's a name you don't hear used often in messages that those of you that are Bible readers will recognize that name. He was the grandfather of Bathsheba that David later married after killing her husband Uriah. She became the queen. Ahithophel, the grandfather, happened to be one of the most brilliant men that ever lived. He was so wise that according to the scripture, kings sought his counsel, and when one sought his advice, the scripture says it was like receiving advice from God. He had a capacity to understand nuances of a problem and a situation to such an extent that he was like a master chess player, not a master, a grandmaster, if you please. He, would, he knew what his last move was going to be before he ever made his first one. And Ahithophel had been storing all of this up, smiling his plastic smile at David and pretending everything is good, but he never forgot what David did to his little granddaughter's husband. And one day Absalom rose in rebellion against David. His own son Absalom tried to kill him and David fled for his life. And Absalom set up his kingdom in the place of David. And Ahithophel said, this is my chance, as I once served as a counselor to David. I will now go serve as a counselor to to Absalom, his son who is in rebellion. And together we will bring about David's fall and death in the wilderness. And he went and presented himself to Absalom. When David heard it, his knees began to shake and his hands trembled. And he said, I'm a dead man walking because Ahithophel is so wise that he's like God giving counsel, and there's no way that I can escape if Ahithophel puts that brilliant mind of his to developing a strategy to make me fall. And Absalom was glad to receive Ahithophel. Another counselor that was also wise, but not as wise as Ahithophel, came to David. He was David's friend. He said, David, I'm going to stand by you and be loyal. And David said, the way you can be loyal to me as if you go and present yourself to Absalom, my son, in rebellion. And this man said, I can't do that. David, I'm your friend. I'm loyal. I've got your back. He said, if you've got my back, what you need to know is Ahithophel has just joined alliances with Absalom. And I need somebody there on the inside circle to counter the advice and strategy that Ahithophel puts together because if I don't have somebody looking out for me, I'm telling you, Ahithophel's going to plot my demise and I'm going to end up dying. And this man went back and joined Absalom's team and presented himself and said, I was a friend to your father, David, but I'll be your counselor now. David is the old, you are the new. Let me turn a page with everybody else and accept you as king. And Ahithophel looked over and saw this man and together they counseled Absalom. And now the immediate test was how can we finish David off? He's running in the wilderness. He's older now. He's weakened. He's been a man of war. But he and his men, they're brave men and strong men, but they're, they're, they're taxed. They're weary. And this was Ahithophel's advice. Whenever Absalom presented the, 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 the question to the counselors, he said, how can we finish this now and get rid of my dad once and for all? Imagine this. Ahithophel said, this is what you do. You get your army together and you go chase him right now while he's weak and he's tired and he's hurting and he's foot sore. He's not used to this. He, he, he's lived in the palace too long and you, you go out there and, and you chase him down and kill him now because you don't want to give him time to recover. And Absalom said, that's exactly what I will do. You, you're as brilliant as my dad used to say you were. And he said, anybody else have any input? And the other guy said, I do. And he said, I respect Ahithophel, but I'm telling you right now, if you follow his advice, you're, you're going to die, Absalom. Because you know your daddy. You were raised in the home, in his house. Your daddy is a man of war. He and the men that are with him are men of war. And you push them into a corner, they're going to come out fighting tooth and claw. And you don't want to do that. You better wait. You better wait. And you know what Absalom did? Absalom, because he knew his dad, David had been a man of war, said, you're absolutely right. My dad, boy, you push him into a corner. That's when he can really turn into something. He turned to Ahithophel and he said, thank you for your advice, but we're not going to follow your advice. We're going to follow this man. And Ahithophel, who had been batting a 1,000 every year up to then, whose advice had never one time been questioned, now Ahithophel hears the words, we're not going to follow your advice, and he sees himself as a failure. And he has never had to deal with failure in his life. He's been so smart, he always knew how to stay a step ahead of everybody else. But I wanna tell you something about failure. Failure's beneficial in some ways, because failure teaches you even when you feel like the whole world is collapsing around you and you feel like the night will never end, do you know what? Six o'clock the morning, you pull the drapes open and you know what you're gonna see? The gray of another dawn rising. Failure teaches you life goes on. Come on, somebody that's made a mistake, help me out here. Somebody that knows what I'm talking about. When you don't wanna face the world, guess what? Hemingway said it, the sun also rises. That's what it does. Life just keeps on going on, and after a while, you pick yourself up. Amen. But hit the had that never had a failure in his life and didn't know how to handle it. Do you know what he did? He went home, sank into a despondency, a depression, and to such a, a stit of a blue funk, if you please, that he actually became suicidal and called his family together and said, I can't live like this. I'm a failure, they're laughing at me. They know what I did and he hung himself because he could not deal with failure. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say, roll it over, would you do that right now? Come on, roll it over. Roll it over, reach heavenward, let it go. Everybody's made some mistakes. Let it go. Let it go. In the name of God, let it go. Number two, commit yourself to give up your disappointments. You've been through some rough places. Last year, as I told you in many ways, was one of the roughest years I've ever, I I hadn't even told Jerry this, but she's sensitive enough. I'm sure she's seen it. I've wrestled with God. I've wrestled with some, not in disappointment. I've just, I've been in spiritual warfare. And I'm old enough and been in this long enough. Now you know what I do. I just, you can show up and want to fight. I'll fight you all year long. I'm not quitting. I'm just doing, amen. You heard that song. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. It's not about whether you're going to discourage me. I'm going to keep on going on. I'm like a Timex. I'll take a ticket, a licking, and keep on ticking. And and I I may not hit on all cylinders all the time, but I'm going to be there anyway. You know why? Because I found the best thing that ever happened in my life. How many of you, this is how you felt coming out of 2013? (laughs) He's been through a battle. That was me, and at times, this was me. I felt like I had been plucked and boiled. Take him off, he's too ugly to leave us there, amen. You've been through some rough places. Give up your disappointments, and I'll tell you about disappointments. Disappointments always involve somebody. Disappointments are always centered around a person. Disappointed on a job, you weren't disappointed in the job, somebody owned the job. A supervisor, a co-worker disappointed you. Disappointed in, in your sales, that means somebody you counted on to give you a contract, didn't. It's always a person in that. Disappointed in a relationship, somebody let you down. Somebody was supposed to do something they didn't do or did something they shouldn't have done. You know what happens? You get disappointed in life and you can become cynical and jaundiced, but I want you to listen to these words from Colossians. Bear with each other and forgive each other whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let it go is what Paul is saying. Did you catch that challenge? Did you hear that God in these words is challenging you directly and personally to give up grudges, to let the fight go? Let it go. Lay your weapons down. Lay your pain down. Let your hurt down. What he's really saying is let your grudge go. Amen. You know what a grudge is? A grudge is a deep ongoing resentment that we cultivate in our hearts against somebody. A grudge is an unforgiving spirit that leads to unforgiving attitudes and unforgiving actions. Let it go. Forgive even though they don't deserve it. Forgive. Let it go. You didn't deserve it and God forgave you. And Paul said just like God forgave you, forgive others. Amen. Grudges destroy marriages, grudges break up families, grudges ruin friendships, grudges split churches, grudges cause businesses to to tank and burn, grudges cause partnerships to be abandoned and dissolved, grudges cause people to leave ministry, grudges cause people to leave churches. You don't need to let grudges ruin your life and cause your life to be run from the wrong perspective. Let it go. Let it go. Because of grudges, people say, I'm never going to that church again. Somebody in that church hurt me. Now, we got four services on Sunday. We have a Spanish afternoon service. You can't make it in the four English-speaking Sunday morning services. Learn to speak Spanish and come in the afternoon. Amen. You hear what I'm saying? Amen. we got a Saturday night service. We've got a Friday night service. We've got so many services going on around here, two to grumbles. The only church I've ever been in I had a 1,000 services every weekend, you know. No, no, come, come on, come on, and get my point. People will leave a church. You didn't leave the job just because somebody did your own. You didn't stop shopping at that H-E-B or Kroger because they still shop there. Your kids still go to the same school. You go to the same PTA meeting. Come on, hear what I'm saying? You go to the same Burger King and Walmart. You shop at the very same Galleria. You didn't go build another one just for you. Let your grudges go. Let them go. Get over it. Somebody hurts you. Let it go. Instead, people become bitter. And we end up like what Job said happens to people. In Job chapter 21 and 25, they have no happiness at all. They live and die with bitter hearts. They live and die with bitter hearts. According to God's word, the way to give up a grudge is to forgive. That's what Paul said. And listen, did you hear, remember the story the master told? Y'all remember that story the master told about somebody that had a servant that owed like $10 million? And then somebody else owed that servant like $10? And the master forgave the $10 million debt, huge amount. And then the servant who had been forgiven, $10 million, went and grabbed the other guy by the throat and said, Give me the $10 you owe me, and had him thrown in jail. And you know what the master said? Because you would not forgive, I'm putting you in prison too. And this is what the Bible means by that. People who don't forgive live in prisons on the inside. Don't live in prison this year. Come on out. Let it go. Forgive. Not hurting anybody but you. Amen. Question is, will you do it? Number three, commit yourself to build strong relationships this year. Strong relationships are important. You may not realize it, but every time you start your car, modern automobiles have a computer built in that does a diagnostic check as soon as you turn on your your, uh, ignition. And it checks out your systems. It checks out coolant systems and brake systems, and it checks out electrical systems and, and fuel systems and all of the rest. And if something is wrong, a little check engine light comes on. Something will flash up or something like that on the dashboard. Don't ignore that. That's there to help you. You ignore that, you're going to be driving down I-10 or 59, and you're going to leave parts scattered all down the freeway, and you're going to be pulled over on the side of the road waiting to be towed in because that little systems check is important. Do you know what this book does? This book also has... Uh, the capacity to do a systems check in our lives. When you study this book, this book does some stuff. It turns some lights on every once in a while. Can somebody in the building say amen. amen? Listen to what Paul said if you don't believe it does in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, first of all, understand it might not be possible. You might try to fix it and the other person won't allow it. You just do what you can and then let it go. You did what you could. Not even God forces you to get saved. Not even God forces you to repair your relationship with him. And the second thing, this verse really hinges upon the middle clause, as far as it depends on you. Say it as far as it depends on me, far as it depends on me. This is important. This means the Lord wants you to do what you can to fix it. After you fixed it or done what you could, if the other person is unrelenting and unwilling, let it go. But I can promise you in this building, there's some people that need to learn to say the two hardest words that are the most difficult to speak in the English language. Anybody know what those two words are? I'm sorry. Am I the only one that doesn't like that? Uh-uh. Blue and Elton John used to sing a song. Sorry is the hardest word. It is. But sometimes you got to say to a spouse, I'm sorry. Come on, practice that. I'm sorry. Say it. I'm You see, your face didn't fall apart when you said it. Amen. The world didn't end. Armageddon didn't come and go. Amen. There wasn't a meteor destroyed the planet. Say it again. I'm sorry. Let it go. Let it go. I feel such an anointing in those words. Let it go. Let it go for Christ's sake, for his sake, the Lord's sake. Let it go as much as it is possible. Amen. As far as it depends upon you, let it go. Number four, commit yourself to turn away from your transgressions. Use this year. Purpose that this year will be your year to turn away from transgressions. I have literally have known people. Seriously, I've met people that have been incarcerated for so long that after doing lengthy prison terms 35 years or so the world had changed so much when they were finally released having paid their debt to society that when they came out they could not adjust to the changes the world had made and think about it for a moment changes are happening so fast now it's unbelievable I mean, look at your phone, for heaven's sakes. Six or seven years ago, the top phone was a Motorola StarTAC flip top. Y'all remember that? You wouldn't be caught dead with one. It's got to be a Samsung Galaxy 3 or something now or an iPhone 5. You know what I'm saying? All the bells and whistles, right? Amen. Amen. But imagine somebody that's been locked up 35 years gets out. And I've literally known people that have gone back to judges and said, don't let me go. I don't know how to live out there. Keep me here where there's a structured environment. And to me, that is so sad, it makes you want to just cry that they have been incarcerated so long, they don't know how to live as free men or women anymore. And because the legal system is not set up that way, and because they were not prepared for the world they discovered when they walked out, having paid their debt, do you know what some of them do? Some of them go looking for another crime so they can be locked back up in what they feel like is the only world they really fit in. You say, that's sad. It is, but I know Christians the same way. I know Christians that used to be prisoners of sin that have been set free by the blood of Jesus. Do you hear what I'm talking about? And Romans 6 said, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its lustful desires. We are no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free. Do you hear me? Free. You've been set free. Don't go back into prison. You don't need to live in chains anymore. Christ died to set you free. Truth of the matter is, as long as we're human, we will always deal with issues that we struggle with on the inside. Listen to this, Hebrews 12 and one. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and run with patience the endurance, the race that is set before us. Did you see that? The weight, lay aside every weight and the sin, singular, that so easily ensnares us. You know what that means? It means that you may be strong in something, and you look at me, and I'm weak in it, and you just kind of get this attitude, but let me tell you something, you may be weak in something I'm strong in, too. All of us are made of the same flesh. Hello, somebody. All of us have what Christians used to call a besetting sin. And maybe that besetting sin is a tendency to be angry or impatient and you need to work on that. Don't let it trip you up. Put it under the blood this year. That's what you fall back into when you don't pray and you don't fast. And I'm calling you to fast and pray the month of January. Maybe it's even something more than that because things like anger and impatience, everybody around us can see those. But maybe it's logging on to a site we shouldn't log on to on a computer when nobody's around. Let it go. Don't go back into that jail again. Jesus died to set you free and trust me you don't belong in there you're a child of God whom the son has set free is free indeed amen give God some praise right now amen I feel the Holy Ghost working on that there's some of us that have got stuff in our lives that we need to let go of. And God's calling us right now. There's a systems check that's going on. The diagnostics check that is being made. And I'm not calling people by condemning them. I'm telling you that God doesn't want you to have to live that way. To lay over that feeling that, oh, I hope I'm not found out. I hope no- nobody discovers this. You can be free from the guilt and everything else. And you don't have to worry when people look at you out of the corner of their eye and smirk. You know, and think, oh, they must know something. Uh-uh. No, lay it, lay it down. Let it go. Come on, number five. The fifth commitment that will change your life is commit yourself to a life of excellence in 2014. Let everything you do be characterized by one thing. If you're going to do it, it's going to be done right. Amen. Do the best you can. Come on, can I hear an amen from somebody? Leave fingerprints of excellence on what you do. If it's singing, be the best there is. If it's music, be the best there is. If it's a student, be the best there is. If it's an employee, be the best there is. If it's IT, you be the best going. And when somebody gives you credit, you say, if I gain any praise, let it go to Calvary because to God be the glory. Amen. Give God the credit. According to Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. I'm not announcing my subject for this theme for this year, but I will next Sunday. But all I'll tell you is this. It has to do with passion. The thing that defines and separates winners from those who just ran. The thing that makes the difference between those who leave a mark and those who don't is passion. When you have passion, you get up earlier and stay up later than anybody else. You push yourself harder. And listen, talking about passion, if there's anything we ought to have passion about, it's God. So I come to the sixth and final commitment. Commit yourself to pursue God. Amen. Commit yourself to pursue God. Psalms 112 and verse 7, this is what the psalmist said concerning the righteous. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed trusting in the lord fixed did you hear that fixed trusting in the lord you know what that word fixed means it it really has meaning in this and in this regard what it means is to be preset upon something you made a decision to set it this way let me explain it in a way you can understand in my house i own the remote in that house do you hear what i'm saying you can laugh all you want to, but that's the herd house rules. When daddy's home, it's my remote. I go sit in my chair in front of my plasma screen TV and I set the channel where I want it to be set. You don't like it? You can go to another room where there's another TV. But in my bedroom, that's my chair, my remote and my TV, and I went in the other day and found Jonathan, my son. He's going on 44. (laughs) He was sitting in my chair. Next month, he'll be 44. He had my remote in his hand and was watching what he wanted to watch. And I walked over and I snatched it and I said, that belongs to me. But dad, I'm right in the middle of something. There's another TV in another room. The herd house rules are in my room. I set the channel. I don't know what service Jonathan was in, but this is for his benefit. Are you hearing me, son? I love you and all that, and I'm your daddy. But it's, I set the channel. But daddy's right in the middle of an important part of the game. Go watch it in another room. That's my, I set the channel. Now listen, you can set some things in your life. And David said the righteous man is not afraid. you know why? Because his heart is set. It's fixed, trusting in the Lord. What does it mean? It means like all of these myriads of cable television channels and and serious radio that you've got it pre-programmed. You're fixed on God. This is what Paul said. Set your affections on things above, not on things beneath. I'm calling on Christian Tabernacle. At the beginning of this year, let's set our hearts on God. Do you hear me? Let's set our hearts on God. Let's set our hearts to seek the face of Almighty God. Not only that, fixed means something else. Fixed means repaired. Like I took my car and a mechanic repaired it or fixed it. All of us, our hearts were broken and sinful. And Jesus came and fixed them. Fixed them. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I was the hardest, one of the hardest people you would have ever, ever met. I could not cry. You know why I'd been through so many things that made me cry when I was a kid? I'd been hurt so many times, I purposed I will never allow myself to be vulnerable again and I was cold, and I was ice, and people used to say, you don't have any feelings. What is this about you? Oh, there was something way down on the inside that wanted to feel, but I wouldn't let it. You know why? Because I'm not going to put myself in the position to ever be hurt by anybody I trust again, and I was cold, man. I was cold. I had people do me things, and I did things to people that I don't even want to talk about right now, and when I walked into that little church in Lake Charles, Louisiana on Kirkman Street, and I gave my heart to God, you know what God did? He took my heart of stone out gave me a heart of flesh. And and you know what? I started crying that night, and I haven't stopped since. It embarrasses me. I don't mind telling you. I'll be sitting there, and the rest of you are hallelujah and all of this and having fun. And when God comes in, I go to sobbing and weeping, and I'm looking for the Kleenex box. And, and I, I think, they're wondering, what's the matter with you, Pastor? Well, you think whatever you want. All I can tell you is if you'd known how cold I was, You know why I love him so much. He gave me a heart. He gave me a new beginning. He gave me a fresh start. My heart is fixed to pursue God. There is no greater joy. And this is what I have learned. You want to climb to the top of the Himalayas and find some some master there and ask him what the secret of the universe and living life is, I can tell you, you don't have to go all the way to Nepal or Tibet. You can stay right here in Houston. I can tell you what it is. The secret to happiness is to know God. Know him. Know him. Paul, as Saul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus that day, and it changed his life. He writes about it in Philippians 3, 7 through 12. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I'm not crying over them because I met something so much better that when I found him, I let it all go and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Yes, to know the, I want to know Christ, he says, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Say those things, Five words with me. I want to know Christ. Say it. I want to know Christ. Say it and mean it. God, I want to know you. I dare you to say it to him and not just because I ask you to, but would you turn your faces to him and say, I want to know you, God. You see, the problem I have with religion is it makes salvation you know, a destination. You get saved. Follow my three-point plan, my four-point plan, my however many-point plan. And people go through these little steps and then park until the rapture comes or they, or they die, whatever. I don't know. That's not what it's about. Being saved, being baptized, being filled with the Holy Spirit is the start of a journey. It's not arriving at a destination. It's to know Him. And the tragedy is this church, like any church. And I don't say this unkindly probably is full of people that have gone through the right steps but still don't really know Jesus. And that's not what God wants us to have written upon our tombstone. He got saved, but he didn't know Christ. Paul said after he wrote half the New Testament, shipwrecked, left for dead, stoned, left for dead, beaten, left for dead, put in prison, finally his head cut off, fasting, starving, starvation, perils of robbers, perils of, of his own countrymen, perils among brethren, this is what Paul said. This is what he said. I want to know Christ. Wait a minute, Paul. You had an experience on the road to Damascus. I, I still want to know Christ. Because when this is what you need to understand when once you meet Jesus, nothing, nothing else matters again after that. Nothing, And I don't mean that, that things are unimportant. I mean that compared to knowing him, Everything else becomes secondary. And you know that is wonderfully liberating because what it means is now you can excel in everything else and do it as an act of worship unto God. Amen. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It was on these verses, some some of my very favorites in the Bible. I've told you before, the book of Hebrews, the book of Ephesians are my very favorite books in the Bible. If you want to know among my favorite single verses, it's these in Philippians from chapter 3. It's from these verses that Graham Kendricks wrote the song, Knowing You, Jesus. And it goes like this. All I once held dear built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain I have counted loss. Spending worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy and my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. I really do. Perfect, not a by-long (laughs) shot. Those who are going to serve communion will come take their places now, and I'm going to ask them to prepare to serve you. I feel God in this room. And so the real question is not, are we at a new year? Of course we are. The real question is, was this, will this new year just be one more in a long line of new years where we make promises that are quickly forgotten and broken, resolutions that fall by the wayside? Or will you make these six commitments with me? Will you commit yourself to forget your failures? Will you commit yourself to give up your grudges, your disappointments? Will you commit yourself to build strong relationships? Will you commit yourself to turn your back on your transgressions? Let's live the Jesus life this year. Will you commit yourself to a life of excellence? Will you commit yourself to pursue God?